Welcome, welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast presented to you from the Western Cape Pod Bunker located here in the heart of Cape Town, South Africa. This pod is presented to provide a platform and a voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. In 2004, to the north of Johannesburg's urban fringe, a peri-urban area in old planning terms, the city of Johannesburg has broken ground on a 3.5 billion rand project known commonly as Cosmo City. Cosmo City bookended 10 years of democracy in the housing program, which had already delivered on a million and more housing opportunities across the country. Today we consider what makes and made Cosmo City so special. What did it take to bring this initiative to fruition? How many years of planning, of engagement with communities both for and against the development? How many years of legal challenge came before this moment? And how important within the Cosmo City concept was the issue of public and private partnership? 15 years on, almost a generation of cosmopolitans later, how does the settlement fit within the success stories of human settlements in South Africa? Last year, Carte Blanche saw fit to highlight Cosmo's booming property market in that lower to middle income housing bands in 2019. How do we measure success in other ways? What lessons can we learn about integration, about spatial transformation, mixed typologies, mixed income groups, and the concepts of well-located, better-located land? It's worth remembering that the president's recently announced new city of Lanseria is located a stone's throw to the north along Malebongwe Drive, the main access point into Cosmo City. So many questions and who better to ask and look at this case study than Yasmin Kovadia and Tian Ilis. Yasmin and Tian were working for the Northern Johannesburg Local Council in that period during the planning for Cosmo as the executive officers for housing and planning respectively. Both have served the communities of Johannesburg and Gauteng for decades in various roles. In Yasmin's case, she worked within the executive management of Gauteng's housing department after that time with Johannesburg, and also within the corporate and private worlds. Since 2010, she has been a leading personality in the National Treasury's Cities Support Programme, or CSP Programme, as you'll hear it mentioned from time to time. As one of the consulting teams responsible for, amongst other things, the Built Environment Performance Plan, or the BEP, and spatial targeting initiatives across the country, she's very well placed to reflect not only on Cosmo City, but some of these broader issues of spatial transformation. Likewise, Tian has spent decades serving the communities of Johannesburg. He spent extended periods as the Executive Director for Planning, for Environment and for Infrastructure, and currently he serves as a Special Advisor to the City Manager there in Johannesburg. Their expert and hands-on experience of the project makes for a fascinating and insightful, thought-provoking conversation in the second of our Deep Dive Housing series here on the Talking Transformation podcast. As always, we're indebted to our guests for sharing their experience and taking the time to talk to us and our listeners. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode and please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform. You'll hear the details of that Twitter platform at the end of this episode. 
So it's a Wednesday evening and we are on Skype here from the pod bunker in the Western Cape and up north in Johannesburg and Pretoria. I've got Yasmin Kovadia and Tian Ilis joining us to talk about their recollections there of Cosmo City and what it took to put Cosmo City on the ground. Yasmin, Tian, how are you this evening? I'm good, thanks Pete. Nice to be with you. And um, yeah, looking forward to this interview. Same here, Pete. Uh, nice to talk to you again. And uh, yes, it's a topic that's close to our hearts and uh, and we've managed to achieve something there. So we're proud to talk about it. Yasmin, you've been spending quite a bit of time with the Treasury National Department with the City Support Programme. Tion, you with the, with the City of Johannesburg, you've been there for many years. What, what are the roles that are keeping you busy in 2020? Yasmin, let's start with you first. So I'm busy with spatial transformation at the National Treasury amongst some other work. And this is to repent for my sins in putting housing in my earlier days in the wrong spaces. So that's what I'm up to, spatial transformation. Tion? Yeah, I'm a special advisor in the office of the city manager and I'm reporting to the chief operations officer. And um, my task is to facilitate integration between spatial planning for the sake of spatial transformation and link it with infrastructure planning and long-term financial planning. Here we are talking about Cosmo City, but the, the positions you're in now really trying to drive that both the metropolitan scale and in your case, uh, Yasmin, there at the national national level. So spatial transformation, absolutely relevant to the conversation we're having this evening. What is your earliest recollections of Cosmo City as a project, as an initiative? Tian, let's start with you uh, first up. Your role at that stage, probably with the Northern Metro uh, Johannesburg, uh, even before the, the Uni City or the Metropolitan Authority of the City of Johannesburg. How has it ended up your table and what, what was your role in those early formative days? At the time, I was the executive officer responsible for urban planning um, in the Northern Metropolitan Local Council. And um, as I said, is that uh, that's at the time when um, when uh, we had to develop the land development objectives. I don't know if you can recall that. Yeah, the LDOs. Yeah. Yes, that we had in terms of those times. So we were we were tasked with the, with that particular uh, uh, responsibility. In that, we had to deal with this conflict between economic potential versus environmental sensitivities versus the poor people that were disadvantaged from the previous regime. And how do we incorporate those things? So that was sort of my role at the time. And then Cosmos City then was expropriated by the Northern Metropolitan Local Council. And slabam, that piece of land was on our desk and and said, okay, guys, this is how we're going to solve the housing problem. You take it from here. What's the year, Tian? What year are we talking about? That was 1996 early days of the new administration. As you say, LDOs are coming into place. Development Facilitation Act is taking root and seat there. Maybe it's just important to for the listeners, again, the benefit, for the benefit of those who, who weren't around in those early days. Um, when we talk about the land development objectives, it was basically a forerunner to the integrated development plans, not so? Correct, yeah. It was, uh, it was required in terms of the Municipal Systems Act and the DFA. Remember the DFA. 
Absolutely. So that was that was a forerunner for those people who are saying, "What is this thing of the LDOs?" Uh, it was it was basically a forerunner to the, the IDP, a forerunner to what would ultimately become the Municipal Spatial Development Frameworks as a component of the uh, of the IDP. So Yasmin, where, where are you? What are you doing around the time that Tian is looking at Cosmos City on his desk? I arrived from Durban, uh, from Etiwini, at that time Durban City Council. Walk straight into the LDO process in the Northern Metro Local Council with John leading that process as the executive officer for planning. I was the executive officer for housing. My timeline would be 1996. Perfect. So there we are, 1996, the two of you working closely together on a concept. How did you start to build the idea? You had a, you had a location in mind? What were some of the, 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 the primary foundations of the concept of why it was going to be important? What was arguably going to be different in the approach that the Northern Metro was going to take um, in terms of the delivery, in terms of the typologies, et cetera, et cetera? As I said, is that we were, we were um, responsible and, and, and we were obliged then to develop those land development objectives. And what we did, we took our municipal area and we divided it into different sort of planning zones and right. areas. And um, where this, where Cosmos City is located is in the northern areas of the Northern Metropolitan Local Council at, at the time. And um, being involved in those planning exercises as I said, is that in meeting with the, with, with the communities and so forth, uh, in terms of our planning exercises, there was this big issue coming out to say that, you know, that the it, it was a semi-rural, uh, semi peri-urban kind of environment and uh, that there's a, a, a tremendous economic potential. And in those days, there was strong reference to Lanseria as a potential economic node. And there are particular corridors linking uh, uh, Lanseria then with the Ramberg CBD, for instance. So we had that particular discussion around how do we develop the economic potential of the area. At the same time, we uh, had to acknowledge that there were environmental sensitive areas, there are lots of environmental quality areas in the area, floodplains, mm -hmm. wetlands. That area was also characterized by, by informal settlements, which was a typical symptom of the time. Those conflicting demands became a, a, an issue for us to resolve. And then one of the first land development objectives that we formulated in those days uh, in conjunction with the community was to address the pressing demand for housing in the north and the western part of the city. And then if you look at the other land development objectives, it was it assesses to satisfactorily resolve the conflict between environmental sensitivities economic uh, considerations and social uh, responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. That was sort of setting the scene and building up towards that. Because of the pressing need of, of people, as the, the, uh, the municipality then saw an opportunity because there was a large tract of land that was well-located, not ideally located, but well-located, and that would actually help us to address um, uh, these issues. And, um, and there was only two landowners involved in that large tract of land. So they decided right. to acquire that land and they acquired it by means of expropriation, which was like a quick way of, of, of getting a control over the land while you sort out the compensation issues. This would have been one of the first times that expropriation post-1994 had been utilised in Johannesburg, correct? That's correct, Pierre. Um, Peter, if I can add to that. So that was the bottom-up process, the land development objectives, running the process in the city, etc. 
At the same time, I kept getting calls from provincial housing, Gauteng province, sometimes from a national level as well, to say their proposals to develop Cosmo City, although people weren't quite clear where this piece of land was, right? Cosmo City is the new seat of parliament. So they were, they were planning to move parliament from, from Cape Town to Cosmo, but it wouldn't just be parliament, it would be a model new city with parliament being the core focus. So, so the initial, let, let's understand this correctly, uh, Yasmin. So what you're saying is that the original concept went way beyond just a pioneering housing development. It was really thinking about the location of parliament uh, as a massive uh, national initiative. Yeah, and it was both actually, because just before elections in 94, at that time I wasn't here, but this is what I understood and Tian was in Joburg at that time. The provincial administration went and got people off of the small holdings and larger farms. At that time, even south of Lanseria. And it, they took the people who should have been accommodated on the farm and put them in Dipslut together with people that were involved in some kind of, pro not protest, but there were different factions fighting in Alex. They took right. one people to Dipslut, another to Zevenfontein. Right. So Zevenfontein, Zanspreit, and those areas, I guess, were amongst the primary informal settlements you were dealing with at that stage, correct? Zanspreit was still a parrot farm. and There we go. So Zanspreit wasn't even there, right. What was the response from the neighbouring community? You've gone in there, Tian. You've you, the expropriation is is going to be the, the the route that you you've chosen to go to consolidate those land parcels into something that's usable, and can deliver at scale. What was the the challenges that you might have had in terms of the neighbouring community? And I think Yasmin, if I remember, you've also you had you had some fairly heated discussions out there on the northern fringe. I'm saying it was always we were side by side. You with the mandate for planning, me with the mandate for housing. We had to answer to people who said they were in transit camps and wanted permanent housing. We had to answer to the landowners who preferred to have with septic tanks, borehole water, because there were no bulk services. And and we tried to sell uh, a stack of housing in the area to say, but we'd bring you bulk services, we'd bring you water and we bring you sanitation. And they said, well, we don't want it. So you, you, you were up against it from the start, right? Eh? Oh, yeah. As I said, is that we encountered this kind of a conflict between the economic, the desire for economic development, you know, to increase land values versus uh, environmentalists uh, who spoke about the, uh, the quality of the environment. And then uh, we had all those, of these real evidence of poor people living in, in informal settlements. When these things were identified, and, and there was an agreement then that while we explore the uh, the environmental quality and the economic potential of the area, it was necessary to accommodate the poor people. It was an acknowledgement that, that we facilitated uh, through the planning processes that we had, the planning framework work that we've done to, to, to get the, the buy-in. And at that stage, there was no piece of land. There was nothing mentioned of where we intend doing that. So everybody... Uh, felt sort of social responsible that we have to deal with this problem without uh, defending their own backyards in that sense. The expropriation of the land was was done 
it was expropriated because that was like a, a very quick step from the city side to say that, okay, we've now agreed that we have to uh, deal with these needs. So, and we need land that I think somewhere along in the documentation that we generated through those days, we said is that we have to find land where we can accommodate these people in proper urban settlement kind of environments. So with that as a mandate, the city then expropriated uh, the large tract of land that was primarily owned by APS at the time, and then one individual called Robert van Tonder. And that gave us over a thousand hectares then to, to, to try and resolve it. So suddenly, the, the whole, the whole uh, dynamics in the area changed because now there's a location. Then what happened is that there, there was also a court order for the, uh, the relocation of the Zeerenfontein informal settlement. And they were, they were located right next to Dane Fern. It's one of these private estates. And then what happened then, when we started to, to, to make these moves in that direction, there was pressure on the city then, or the municipality then, to say that you've got a court order. You have to respect the court order. You have to do that. So they became the prime beneficiary community to go to, 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 to Cosmo City. But then suddenly, you know, all the dynamics started because it's that, uh, especially on the, the peri-urban kind of environment, people formed groupings and uh, uh, it was called the Crocodile Rivers something association and, um, and and they started to launch all kinds of initiatives to try and, and undermine or to derail the process and, and then prevent the city from proceeding with these things. Our saving grace at the end of the day was is that when we were in court at the end, when the township, uh, the town, town planning application was taken on appeal, when that happened and we went to court, to high court, we could demonstrate that we went through four planning exercises where we have discussed and planned and allow the community to participate and engage in terms of, of how are we going to accommodate the poor in that region. There was like the different levels of planning. So there was the broad LDOs, then there was the Northern Area Strategic Planning Framework, then there was the Zone of Development Opportunity that was identified. So we, we used the planning frameworks as a tool, as a mechanism to resolve the conflict and do it. So eventually we came up with a framework for the piece of land that we acquired uh, by means of expropriation. And we allowed task teams from the community to participate in that. So how do we deal with housing on that piece of land? How do we deal with economic potential? How do we deal with the social infrastructure and all of those things? So they set up a framework and then the framework became then, became then the basis for the township layout that was designed. People who then consulted, but they've never been consulted, they haven't seen that, and things like that, no leg to stand on, because we had this two, three years process of planning, 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 that actually then uh, took uh, that particular argument out of the uh, out of their hands as, as objectors to the matter. I mean, Yasmin, when I'm listening to this, what I hear Tian reflecting on is massive complexity. You've got legal issues in terms of what the courts are saying, the regulatory processes like the environmental planning, the planning regulations, getting infrastructure into uh, to a new area, the community dynamics, both within the informal settlements as well as the existing, uh, uh, let's call it uh, wealthy areas of the city. You, you're dealing with massive complexity. How did you, how, and, and those are issues that we, we challenge with today, uh, all these years later, it hasn't got any easier. What were your recollections of how, how you got up in the morning and how you dealt with this? What was the armor that you put on when you went into these spaces to have very hard conversations about very complex and very emotional issues? Well, my armor, Pete, was 
having to deal with the housing part of the LDOs and then managing to run the housing department and, and getting, you know, hands and feet into places like Zanspreit, Zevenfontein and Ipslot. For me, having people in my office every day that complain about living in a transit area, etc., living in informal settlements while it's been upgraded, spurred me on to say there's got to be a better way of doing housing. Mm. That, that was my armor, Peter. We were three people who really played a major role in actually talking this thing through, planning it through with the, with the communities and so forth. Yasmin represented the, uh, the, the people in need of housing. And uh, she was quite strong and, and aggressive sometimes in terms of defending their rights in the process. And I, from the planning side, was trying to, to sort of balance the needs with all the other requirements and things like that and so forth as a planner to try and deal Understood. with that. And, um, and then we had, a, then we had a, a MMC um, at the time that was responsible for planning. His name is, uh, it was Councillor Ruby Mata. And he had a, a, a very, very unique way of dealing with the communities. Uh, you know, he could, between the two of us, he managed then the conflict in conjunction with the with with the audience of the community and things like that. And the three of us then, so we we, we basically had good cop bad cop kind of a situation with the facilitator in between right, and helped right. us then to to to, to meet the the, the uh, to meet those kind of conflicting uh, uh, issues. And then um, and, and and you know the evidence of that is is that if you go and look at the objectives that was agreed to in terms of our planning frameworks, I mentioned to you that that it says. Um, that we must address the uh, the pressing demand. The, the 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 objective number one, two, three, four, five was to dispel with the negative perception that existed at the time with regards to racial integration and RDP housing. That was a that was an objective in the LDOs that we managed to get uh, sorted out and between us and with the community and get that endorsed as part of the resolution and things like that. And, and, and those things sort of set the scene for us to put a cosmicity in place. What is it that we are looking at when that township layout uh, and the typologies and the structures that are going up there? My understanding was there were four different types of housing, subsidized, partially bonded and rental stock. Uh, all within that space. That's quite a pioneering mix of typologies, even in those early formative years. How did you get get to to develop that mixed model and that mixed income model? Well, we had the concept of um, mixed housing of housing accommodate for a range of affordability, and the the one thing that both Tian and I and and Ruby as well would say is that you've got to put the bonded housing down first. If you put the RDP down first, you were likely to negatively impact market perception. One of the major, you know, we really pushed that and we made sure that it would happen in that way because we were quite sensitive to what could go wrong with the mm. project. If, if I look at the, if, I, if I look at the menu here of of what was what was actually provided in terms of different housing typologies, I'm reading here five thousand fully subsidised houses, uh, three thousand partially subsidised, um, three thousand three hundred fully bonded houses to be sold on the open market, and about a thousand apartments for for rental. 
that was obviously su- supported by an open space network, social amenities. And I think my recollection of Cosmo was that it was one of the few times when we could say that there was a, a, a sequencing of both the social, the physical, as well as the housing, or the infrastructure for the schools, the clinics, etc., together with the bulk infrastructure, together with the reticulation and the houses all going in around the same time. Is, is that a fair, fair uh, recollection? You're correct in terms of the, the residential mix, um, that, but it also included 12 schools and clinics and other social right. facilities. Uh, there was 100 hectares set aside for industrial purposes, and there was also a 200 hectares that were uh, identified through our uh, um, technical assessments beforehand uh, that are environmentally sensitive. So that was a huge chunk out of our 1,100 uh, hectares. Right. Where the mix came in, in our area, we dealt with two areas, two kind of situations of informal settlements. We had the Dipsworth, which was a, 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 a large reception area, and uh, that got added on every time there's a flood along the Yakske River in the Alex Ulsha. We look at it. That was a huge uh, sort of informal kind of uh, situation. It was a reception area, but it's not totally unplanned. But the densities that sort of resulted then as a result of, of moving people there and the growth that took place, it was a huge pocket of poverty that you found there. On the other side uh, of Cosmo City, you had a, 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 a small pocket of, of informal housing called Zanspreit. As she mentioned that a little bit earlier on. Zanspreit started off very small with people that were evicted from the farms as a result of the changing legislation about obligations of landowners towards their, their, their workers. And then what we experienced, and, and, and this is what I used in, in many discussions that I had with Yasmin, was is that I went there on a Sunday, for instance. If you go to, to Zanspreit on a Sunday morning, you'll find a, a lot of activity of the surrounding community who reach out to that community. And they come up there with, with vehicles and they pick up the children and they take them to Sunday school. Some people come there and they distribute old clothes and stuff like that. There was a social responsibility visible from the surrounding community where they are taking care of these poor people in their backyard. In the case of Deepsworth, it was too big. And it created this kind of a fear that this is a uh, this is an area that you don't go, uh, you know, lots of criminality and things like that. So what we then thought is that is that we, we have to find a very healthy balance in terms of how do we absorb the poor, but surrounded by 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 the more affordable side of things, because then your churches work, your your schools work. Because when they organize a fundraising exercise or something like that, if you are in a large area such as you find in Orange Farm, for instance, nobody can contribute. Everybody's poor. Everybody's in the same kind of a class. And that made things for the social upliftment of the community very difficult. That was something that we pushed for to say that let's find a happy balance in terms of how we can do that, and then see how the the the, the, the let's call it the 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 more healthy or the more affordable side of the communities absorb the poor, and make things work that are essential and critical for the uh, for the social fabric of the environment. So we started off initially, and just me, you may recall that we only wanted to accommodate three thousand subsidised units. Yeah. 
So the ratios and things are okay. But as we went along with the process and the longer it took, um, the people, um, you know, the, the province then started to say, but guys, we can't we can't settle for 3,000 only with 1,000 rental stock. And then uh, with a, a small number, there was, I think it was also a smaller number of, of a credit link. And then the ratios changed. And we said, okay, you know, we, we're fighting here uh, against need and some kind of a philosophy in terms of how we're going to facilitate this mix. And um, and we opted for this this recipe that you just mentioned now, this ratio of 5,000, 3,000, 1,000, and then 3,300 uh, fully bonded houses. Like from the original concept, given that you're waiting, you're putting in bulk services, you're doing further planning, you're getting all the other stuff you know in place, there was time to think about it, model, to look at alternatives. Whereas, you know, on a whole lot of other housing projects that I did in the Northern Metro Local Council, there was no time to think. You just had to react. So especially when when you're doing an institute upgrading or something like that, by its nature, given the amount of time it would take to put in the bulk services and to get the funding for it, by the way, that was a major obstacle we had to overcome. It gave you the time to do that. And we were very conscious that we needed to keep that land clear of invasion or, or, you know, any kind of settlement before we were ready, because this is supposed to be a planned settlement. We had endless debates and discussions with province who were um, promoting the housing topology at the time, that in terms of the urban design of the the whole uh, development, is that we wanted to promote higher densities, but we we were stuck with the the 150 square meter sites for for RDP houses, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a limitation that we had to deal with as well. And then otherwise you don't qualify, you won't be able to access the the, the subsidies and so on. Um, uh, The the, uh, 1,000 institutional housing was quite an achievement for us to actually uh, incorporate that into our development and get province then to agree to the funding of those things as well. Where within this conversation, or did it come up, this idea of the Noeto? Uh, we, obviously, we talk about Soweto, the southwestern townships. Noeto in terms of the northwestern townships always seemed to be one of the sort of fear factors in that area that this would become a, a band of, if you like, poverty across that northern fringe. Is that something that was discussed, was was mitigated against during the course of these discussions and, and ultimately the plan that was rolled out and some of these decisions around the income groups and the typologies put on the, put on the ground there in Cosmo. Trying to create this opportunity to provide uh, integrated development there and in that create space and an opportunity for the very poor. Uh, we were always confronted that, um, that this is going to be a failure, it's going to look like uh, uh, you know, a typical kind of a low-income RDP development that you find elsewhere in the country and other parts of Johannesburg and so forth. That was a constant criticism that was always thrown at us. And that's why we were so um, uh, sensitive about it. And that's why we managed to incorporate into this whole approach principles about uh, the level of the standard of services, because is that we we did say to make this project successfully. And remember, there was also a land value uh, aspect involved, not only in the township itself, but not to impact negatively on the surrounding land values. So we said is that that if we then develop this whole area, mix, uh, mix income, Mixed uh, mix land use, 
then um, and, and we maintain the, the, uh, the particular level of service services that we provide, then you won't be able to distinct between a partly subsidized unit and a fully subsidized unit and a bonded unit, although the bonded unit will stand out normally a little bit later, that becomes bigger and smarter with tile roofs and those things. But we try to, to, to see whether the that visual kind of impact that you get from RDP housing, that we try to integrate that into the design to protect the, uh, the land values um, in, 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 in the surrounding areas. There was another issue as well, is that we also uh, were very much aware of certain risks that we are facing. So we, we had a principle to say that we're going to start off with a bonded housing and market the bonding housing first before right. we establish RDP uh, households there. And, and otherwise, if you start off with the RDP, you portray that kind of a perception that this is a low-income area, and then uh, we were scared that, that other people may not want to buy the bonded houses right next door. So that was a principle that we also in, uh, incorporated into the area. It didn't work like that perfectly because is that that because of the pressure and the need for housing that we started with bonding and RDPs at the same time, and the bonded houses sold like sweet cake. You know, which was really surprising for us uh, in terms of, of takeoff and acceptance then by their by, by by their communities. What was the role of Kodevco, the Gauteng Department of Housing and the city of Johannesburg? How did these different relationships work? Kodevco, if I understood, was the sort of public-private partnership uh, with the city and province. But just to, to understand the importance of that partnership uh, in the delivery of the project, how did that work? It was quite a, a, a sort of a, a awkward story that goes along with that. Um, you know that when when we um, did all this planning and, this, and the municipality um, expropriated the land and so forth, and then Yasmin uh, started to pave the way for us at province in terms of the kind of the number of housing subsidies that we need in order to 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 create this this residential development and so forth, and then then the next thing we saw was the province went out on a tender, in the, on the Sunday newspapers, and they were advertising uh, this tender uh, with uh, based on our land as the municipality, but without talking to us. Okay. And um, and and so we then immediately rushed to them, and I think Yasmin, you were still there. And um, and then we rushed to the province and said, "Well, yeah, how can you put out a tender without making us part of this process? I mean, it is a intergovernmental kind of a, a initiative, you know. It must be like that, especially if you if there's big funding coming in for the bulk infrastructure and there's subsidies coming in. But we acquire the land, and that's our contribution to the to the whole project. So um, then they basically." Uh, allowed us to participate then in this tender process then that um, that uh, so we took it then and we changed it from a one stage to a two stage where we asked the the the, the competitors to, to to compete based on principles and, right. and design right. principles etc etc and then uh, through that we from the city side who ran the adjudication then uh, came up with a recommendation one and a two and a three you know like one is being the most preferred one and we handed it back to to province and then province then concluded this uh, tender by entering into a, 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 a funding agreement with uh, this consortium. Because you had to deal with the uh, with the BE components as well. So from a province perspective, they, they, they then initiated then 
uh, a proper uh, a consortium that complies with the, the BEE requirements at the time as well. So, um, so there was this consortium now, and um, uh, they had a funding agreement signed between themselves and province in terms of the subsidy stream. They had to sign an agreement with the city, uh, a land availability agreement. And then what we also did is that in order to, to ensure the success of the project as an integrated project and not to impact negatively on, on land values and so forth, we then also uh, uh, entered into a services agreement. And the services agreement was, was also signed, if I remember correctly, between the city, the developer, as well as, as, as the province, because there were some uh, uh, provincial uh, roads going through the area that needed to, to be upgraded, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it made sense to sign it at that level. And then some of the, the schools and uh, things like that were also built into that, those agreements. And that's how we ended up with, with this partnership then uh, that, uh, that developed the project. So province, the city, and, um, and, and Kodefco as the private developer partner uh, was, the, uh, was the partnership. A question to both of you. When the project got going, was being implemented, was breaking ground. What was your feeling about that? Was it a sense of absolute pride? Was it a sense of relief? Was it a sense that this is something different? Or at that stage, did it seem just like another project and relief that it was going? I had a previous, if you want to call it, a kind of victory with Cosmo. Firstly, that we got the planning done. Secondly, we had to raise the money for the bulk infrastructure while Johannesburg was in the red. But we managed to do that on the basis of mixing subsidies and money from the private sector. By the time it came to breaking ground in Cosmo, it was the day before I gave birth. And Tian said to me, no, you have to come to this party. Because we were in Robert Fontonda's house. We had a braai and put up the new flag. Okay. And the very next day I gave birth. So <laughs> for me, you know, the, the earlier achievements, but... To know that that was happening in 2005, in March, I until today, I'm one of the happiest people driving past Cosmo City and looking at the development. But I cry when I go past Dipslow. Tears of joy, though, right? I don't know. Mixed. Very mixed. Tion, what was your, what was your sense on, that, on that, the eve of breaking the ground? You're there, you're raising the flag. What was your thinking? You know, as a planner, to deal with these kind of challenges... And then on top of that, you know, also to deal with the political transformation that took place in the country at that stage, uh, where we recognize now uh, the, the people that were sort of excluded from, uh, from the, uh, the formal urban environments in the past. It was a, a wonderful uh, uh, sort of experience for me. And then uh, Yasmin had a lot to do with that in terms of really helping me to understand, you know, the, 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 the obligations that we have towards the disadvantaged and, uh, and how do we do that. So, so we formed a good team in the sense that both of us were not sort of falling back on, on, on kind of principles or uh, cultures or whatever that prevented us from solving the problem at hand population growth, migration to the urban areas for employment, seeking a better life, were part and parcel of the real life. And, uh, and the urban planner are challenged with that. So by the way, you know, Yasmin is also an urban planner. And, and so we had to, 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 to plan for the growth and the expansion, 
but trying to deal with these things as well. And it was a wonderful journey. You know, as a young planner that qualified in, in and I qualified in 1980, and uh, and then 14 years later, the, the change took place. The new demo, demo, democracy uh, um, became a reality in South Africa. And then this became the first, first integrated project in the Joburg area that dealt with uh, with these issues uh, uh, in, the, in the post-apartheid era. There's probably a whole episode in terms of how the two of you came to find each other and find and build trust during that period of working together so closely. We'll leave that for another another conversation, another time. What has Cosmo taught us about concepts of land value, of well-located land, about spatial transformation? What are the sort of the takeaway points of this development? I mean, Yasmin, it's fascinating to hear when you, you say when you drive past it, you know, it's an emotional thing for you. What's the practical side to it that also gets you thinking when you drive past there? Well, the practical part of it for me, Pete, is that, you know, we were so ambitious in the early years from 1994, you didn't you didn't realize how long it takes to get good development on the ground. You know, I think in, in terms of the best project planning, you you thought this could happen quickly. I think we were all trying to respond to the urgency of the time. We also wanted to show what we could do as planners in a democratic state. But the most important practical lesson I've learned is that do not rush. Take the time that's needed because you're more likely to get it not right, but close to being right. I think far too often we don't give housing projects enough time on the development planning side, but also the project preparation and project planning side. You know, you speak to Kodevko, they'll tell you, yeah, we did this in X number of years. They don't know the stuff that needed that, which you've asked us today. Let's remind ourselves what you're saying in terms of the summary from the LDOs and the discussions in 1996, Tian, through to 2004, 2005, that's basically an eight-year period that we were looking at, correct? That's correct. So, I mean, there, there's something about the maturity uh, maturity in the processes. I wonder if, if we are allowed as belt and environment professionals to have the luxury of that time now. That's my, my concern. You know, I, but I think is that today is that we have established certain principles um, uh, uh, through the uh, the learnings of, of, of many of these projects. The thing is, is that I think that initially, uh, you know, instead of focusing on racial integration, we focused on, on income integration. And that started also to take the sting out of it, because I could sense in our public engagements, it became more and more difficult to use racial issues as a concern and objection and so forth. And people had to refrain because of the changes in the country. And and they they so you can't say that I don't want a black person to live across the street or next to me. It was to say, but you know, I don't want low income people close to me because it's that they're gonna impact on my property value. You know, and things like that. So that was also one of the the issues, and, and I still think today is that is that by dealing with 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 low income in a sensitive way is much easier than in those times. You know, where we have designed the corridors of freedom, for instance, where we would like to 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 have inclusionary housing in our corridors and so forth. 
I think that the, the way has been paid for it, and it's just how to find a happy recipe and a happy formula in terms of integrating and, and, and allowing those things to happen. This integrated planning approach is now repeating itself uh, more and more, and especially in Joburg. I mean, we've got a couple of, of, of other examples like Fleerhof and so on that are actually very good examples of, 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 of uh, integrated planning. And province has also sort of acknowledged in terms of their performance management, the ratios of the different groups that you put together, they acknowledge all of that as a contribution towards uh, housing delivery uh, in, in the province. So those are important principles that I think that we've established and that we managed to come through, maybe in a long, lengthy way. Uh, another aspect that I must tell you that in order to deal with those conflicts at that stage, we did agree that we're gonna, we'll have to spend more money on professionals in order to give, give us credible evidence or whether this will pollute the uh, the wetland or not, whether uh, this will happen and things like that. Because people raise all these objections in forums. And then if you have evidence, it says clearly, this is the correct, this will not have an impact, this will not do that. From an economic point of view, all of those things like it. We had good studies that could support us in order to, uh, to beat those kind of uh, 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 concerns and objections that were raised against the development. So, so the question of the rigor and the, the, the technical uh, arguments that are put on the table to support, to support the principles, 100%. Yes. ...is really important. So, you know, I would argue that the, the rigor with which we use those planning instruments and, and merged housing and planning together, I don't see too much of that happening these days. They reserve it for mega projects or something like that. But this is what we need. Now we can get good projects on the ground. Talking of good projects, Yasmin, when when we started the conversation, you were saying the certain maybe regrets that you have about some of the housing projects and the location of housing projects that are you know these are this is a countrywide issue where where low low cost more affordable subsidised housing products have been across the across the country. When you look back at Cosmo. Think about it then in 1996 and now in 2020. Do you think there's a lesson for us all to, to learn about what is not well located or is less well located in one decade may well be very well located two decades down the line? Yeah, uh, you can take that perspective, but I think that's a cop-out. I would believe that while I was executive officer for housing there, I was told to leave the inner city alone. We had a portion of the northern MLC in the inner city. So I would deal with institutional or social housing. Even today, with the, the special work that we're doing, Tian will tell you that if you upgraded infrastructure in the inner city and put in the effort to get affordable housing, subsidized housing, a range of housing in the inner city, it still makes more financial and spatial sense to do it there and in other spatially targeted areas than to go out to a place like Lanceria. So you can plan the future. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I don't think we've exhausted our opportunities closer to the core. Tion, any thoughts about that? Uh, as I said, you know, that, that's some of the criticisms that I've experienced. It's, it's, it's the low densities, I mean, uh, the low densities, um, and uh, which, which was basically dictated by the topologies. The, the other criticism that we have was is that it's out, you know, it's on the outside. The urban boundary basically did cut a piece of land off that we could not develop at that time, and we respected the urban boundary. 
He did not go beyond that. It only, when the urban boundary got shifted many years later by the planning department. So it's, it's right on the edge of the city and the, and the, and the, and the, on the, in the northwest. But it was well located in terms of the uh, the, uh, the major road that leads to uh, to Lonceria. It's opposite an industrial area. It's walking distance from uh, uh, the North Cape Dome, for instance. Uh, it's surrounded by high income, middle income, and sort of a peri-urban kind of land uses around it and so forth. It was, you know, from that point of view, you could argue that, you know, uh, we could deal with a large number of people all in once, but uh, the principle of, of housing people within the urban system is a, is a possible criticism of the project. And as I said, uh, at the time, that was what was the option that was available. Today, as I said, I think the roads have been paved and uh, it's it's uh, it's really uh, much better to, 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 to increase your densities along your, your transportation routes and accommodate people in the inner city where they have access to all the urban amenities and all the urban facilities. They can reach out to the universities, to schools from there and so forth. It makes much more sense. Well, I think these are the hard conversations that we're, we're, trying, we're trying to have through the podcast and through the, the discussions that we're going to have, particularly when we're looking at this deep dive into housing, human settlement initiatives. What are the conversations we, we should be having? What can we learn from 24, say 26 years of, of, of implementation? And what is it we shouldn't be replicating going forward? And I think there's enough examples of what we shouldn't be replicating. And I think Cosmo is one of those ones where we, the, the, the jury is still out. And uh, I say there are certain metrics the, the property market seems to be very vibrant there, and it that's, uh, has to be good news. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, as and when, you've mentioned Lanceria, uh, Yasmin, as and when Lanceria takes off, if it does, then the question will be, well, you know, what, what does that do to the economy and the uh, position of, of Cosmo City in the next 20 years? If I may say some comment on, on, on what you just sort of summarized, the, the, you know, a, a, a big criticism of Cosmos City today, which I didn't mention, is urban management. The, the municipality cannot maintain the level of of law enforcement and enforcing compliance in terms of building standards, uh, building in the backyards, uh, through formal building plans and stuff like that and so forth. And that sort of created a, a, a image of, of, of Cosmos City as, as sort of gone down some level in certain parts of that. And it's really hard to argue with people uh, to say that, you know, that that this is a very successful project if you actually go through those areas, you know. So for many years, the presence of Cosmos City was within the development. And they provided that kind of a municipal service that we're supposed to provide as a municipality. But we cannot keep up with that kind of intensity that's required for this urban area to say. So once since they moved out, is that you can clearly see a visible change in the visible uh, or the physical environment from that point of view. If you ask the question about the, the land economics now, in our risk assessments, we knew that to get rid of, 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 of or to, to, to hand over uh, RDP housing to beneficiaries, there are many takers, there's no risk in the, involved with that, that you'll have, end up with, with houses standing empty. But the risk was a, a bit higher uh, um, in, the, in, in the subsidized, the, 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 uh, the credit link ones. And then we, we, we identified a high risk to see whether the bonded part is going to take off. Now, the bonded part took off like sweet cake, as I said, and that risk was dispensed right at the beginning. 
where the retail facilities, um, uh, because there are retail facilities spread through the through the uh, the whole development as well, they 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 were taken up as well. Good competition, good prices, and good values that were achieved through that part. There was this hundred hectares of industrial lands which we thought, oh my gosh, you know, we can't expect any cash flow from that from that part of the development in the next ten years. And we were surprised to see how that piece of land also sold like sweet cake uh, when once it was proclaimed. Much later, much later, after uh, Cosmos City residential component was well established, the, the, the industrial uh, part was actually then put on the market and it went well. Now, come back then. When, when, when this project started, I made, you know, I had to make a commitment towards the politicians that we will recover the land value. And uh, and what what I did is was is that the way that we've structured the the, the land availability agreement we said is that that the subsidised uh, parts is that you cannot ask for a, uh, you, you you can ask for a very standard kind of a land value as for the uh, uh, the uh, the subsidy uh, policy at the time, and that and, and there's some land uh, value or some some money that we will recover from 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 the RDP component. But the, there's 200 hectares of land that we could not develop in terms of environmental sensitivities. And what we did is that I, I then, in the land availability, then, then did a calculation and I asked for the different kind of residential and uh, retail and a land value that they have to pay back to the city once they develop it and then they sell it off in the market. So the agreement was is that they would first settle the, the land cost when a property was sold. And then if there is a profit on the on the property, then we will share that 50-50. So um, this particular project is that all the land costs were recovered. There, uh, we've invested a, an additional 600 million rand in, in, in infrastructure, as you as you know, and uh, we have also um, uh, recovered a, a, a large percentage of that. Uh, although the burden was carried between us and province and uh, and Eskom and Telkom uh, to, to to some extent in terms of meeting those costs, and then. What happened then is that the property uh, market then actually then started to flourish in that area, and it was soon visible that within five years, the RDP houses increased in value where they were supposed to then pay rates and taxes, uh, rates on their, on, on, on their properties. Fascinating. Where they were protected, uh, things like that. It was in a matter of five or six years then um, the, the value. So what the city did that and still to accommodate the poor people was to increase the kind of the, 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 the ceiling, ceiling for properties. That, 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 so all of those dynamics were very visible to show that that, that it is possible to manage uh, uh, this aspect of, of, of poor people in our urban environments without destroying the land values. Uh, you may take a, a temporarily dip in terms of land values. It can stabilize in the vicinity and things like it and so forth. But in the long run, is that is that you do create wealth even for those individuals. Tian, I think it, you know it's, it's fascinating to hear your re- reflections on that and the speed in which things turned around. It raises a whole series of other questions around you know the whole question of the general valuations role and how that responds to to growth in our our uh, subsidised housing initiatives. But I also wanted to leave you with this, and that was that the conversation I had yesterday, the inception uh, episode around this whole housing deep dive, this issue of urban management came up as the the concluding point in that episode also. I think it's going to be one of the, the themes that we're going to carry through a number of the conversations. Whole question of 
urban management, the imperative of that. I know, Yasmin, it's been one of the major aspects of what the city support program has been looking at as one of the driving themes of the built environment that the CSP, City Support Programme, have been looking at. And I think it's going to be one of the themes we're actually going to have to pick up on as a, spe- a specific uh, episode and uh, where we're falling down and how we are uh, addressing some of these issues. Agreed. And it can be an a in-future podcast for you. <laughs> I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you both. Yasmin, Tian, many thanks for taking your own personal time sharing some of these thoughts. I, I, I really hope you've had a chance to to revisit Memory Lane and enjoyed some of that as much as us. I think you've also demonstrated very clearly, Yasmin, there's an emotional element to the work and the legacy that has been left there. And to the both of you, from my side, uh, as somebody who's worked with you, alongside you, I want to thank you both for the contributions that you've made to that built environment wherever you've been, but particularly in that Johannesburg space, and to uh, for the time you've given to, to us uh, fellow professionals. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Look forward to hearing what the feedback is from the listeners on this episode. All the very best, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo one. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.